someone said that what gives Christianity a bad name is Christians. <laughs> On its face value, and to a certain degree, and from a certain angle, this is a true statement. Why? Because there are so many people in our society, in our culture, who claim to be Christians, and in reality they are not. When you ask them, what does it mean to be a Christian, they'll give you all sorts of vague answers, where I believe Jesus, and I believe in Jesus, or I'm trying to be good, and I'm living a good life, and I have my own spirituality, and the rest of it. And therefore, when they act, people think they're Christians. And they judge all of Christianity by them. There are so many professing Christians in our cultures today who are not truly born again. And born again is about the only Christianity that there is. There are so many church-going folks whose heart have not been regenerated, has not been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. There are so many who claim to be Christians And yet they live their lives and their belief system that is not different from non-Christians. That is why, in spite of their claim, they are no different from those who are without Christ. In this message, we're going to see clearly what Jesus says about those folks. About those who claim to be Christians or not. Those look-alike Christians. And in Matthew 25, Jesus tells us, that perhaps there is no greater test of a person's true and genuine Christianity than his or her preparedness for the return of Christ. That preparedness is lived daily, whether they go first or Christ comes back first makes no difference. They're ready. Their bags are packed. And they are busy serving him, and therefore, they're looking forward to that day, not afraid of it. Matthew 25 tells us a profound and a brilliant story about this tragedy of look-alike Christians. This tragedy of professing only Christians. This tragedy of claiming to be Christians, and yet their lives are far from it. Historically speaking, this story is so realistic in its detail. This story is so poignant in its application. This story is so profound in its teaching. Ten young women invited into the wedding feast. Five were wise, five were foolish. There's a reason for that description. I'm going to explain to you in a minute. The wise women showed their wisdom by living their lives in expectation of the return of the bridegroom, that he may come at any moment. They had oil in their lamp. They were prepared at a moment's notice. They were ready all the time. The foolish ones, on the other hand, were negligence. They were unprepared. They lived their lives as if they're going to be around forever. They made their plans as if they're going to be here forever. And while both groups were waiting for the bridegroom, both the wise and the foolish both went to sleep, physically went to sleep. Suddenly the cry goes out, 
The bridegroom is coming. The bridegroom is coming. The wise women got up and they trimmed the lamps and put the oil in it. And the foolish ones realized that they have no oil. So they asked, can they borrow from the wise ones? And they said, no. Each of us has only enough oil for ourselves. And the unprepared ones thought, well, if they cannot borrow the oil, maybe they can buy the oil. They didn't realize that it was the midnight of life and all the stores and all the opportunities and all the doors have been shut and there's no way they can get oil. But they went anyway looking at midnight of life. They came back disappointed. They couldn't find oil. They couldn't buy oil. So they came and they banged on the door. Open the door for us. And the bridegroom said, I don't know you. And then the lesson Jesus gives us in verse 13 of Matthew 25. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day and the hour of my return. In the first century Israel, marriages was different from the way we do it now. The father of the groom and the father of the bride meet together and they make an agreement that their children are going to marry. And then there is a betrothal time. Betrothal is much stronger than just an engagement. It's a binding covenant. You remember Mary and Joseph were betrothed. There was no consummation of the marriage yet, but it's ironclad commitment and a covenant. And after the betrothal time, the groom goes home to his father's house because people lived in extended family. And there he built and prepared a special room in addition to his father's house for his bride so he can bring her in and there she can come and live with him in his family's home. And then when the time comes, he goes into the bride's home and he fetch her to come to his father's house. Now you understand what Jesus meant when he said in John 14, I go to my father and I prepare a place for you. When that place is ready, I come and take you into my father's house. He is our bridegroom. And you see, once the people in the streets of the village, in the streets of the town, see that the bridegroom is dressed in his groom attire and marching into the bride's house, The children and everybody in the streets begin to say, the bridegroom is coming. The bridegroom is coming. And that shout announcing the coming of the bridegroom gets louder by volume and gets stronger in intensity. More and more people are able to see and able to hear that the bridegroom is coming. And let me tell you, in case you don't know and if you don't realize it, that the bridegroom is nearer now than ever. Here's what Jesus is telling us here. In his first coming, the Lord Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, he invited whomsoever to come. He invited whomsoever to come to him and to be betrothed to him. He is inviting whomsoever to come and accept his invitation to receive forgiveness from his hand, to receive redemption by his cross, to come to the Father through him, inviting everyone who would come to have a personal relationship with the Father through Jesus the Son. Some have accepted that invitation unconditionally. They have accepted it 
unquestionably. They have accepted it wholeheartedly, and then they live the rest of their lives waiting for the coming of that bridegroom, faithfully living for him, faithfully serving him by serving others, eagerly awaiting for that day. Whenever it comes, whether it's today or many years from now, whether they go first or he comes back first, makes no difference. But then there's another group. Those who like Jesus, they really like him. They have no animosity toward him. They're members of a church. Their clergy wear clerical garb on a Sunday. Those who regularly go through the religious rituals, those who might have been baptized, those who have gone through the motions of Christianity, who call it their spirituality, Oh, but they live their lives for themselves. They live their lives not motivated by that great day. They are not focusing on that great day. They are not loving His appearing. They are not living and serving and giving with that day in mind. Listen to me. Those foolish young women were not atheists. They were not agnostics. They were not pagans. They were not anti-Christian. No, no. They had warm feelings toward Christ. As a matter of fact, I noticed as you read the passage, there are seven similarities between the foolish women and the wise ones. Look at them very quickly. Seven similarities. They were all invited to the banquet. They both heard the gospel invitation. They both knew the Christian faith, the the tenets of the Christian faith. Secondly, both groups responded positively to the wedding invitations. There are some people, of course, who disregard the invitation. There are some people who ignore the invitation. Some people who scorn the invitation. But not these foolish women, young women. Neither the wise nor the foolish. They both responded to the invitation. They both claimed to be Christians. And thirdly, they both were part of the visible church. They had church membership. They both belonged to a local church here on earth. Fourthly, both groups had affection toward Jesus, toward the Lord. Fifthly, they both confessed Jesus as their Savior. How many times have you heard people who say, Jesus is my Savior? He's not everybody's Savior. He's just my Savior. Uh, Six, they were all actively anticipating at some point the world is going to come to an end. At some point, they're going to die and they're going to have to face their Maker. But those foolish ones who claimed to be Christians did not live like it. They knew the basic tenets of the Christian faith. But their lives were never altered, never transformed by that faith. Seventh, they all physically went to sleep. They got tired. They got exhausted like all people do. They dozed off. But as soon as the bridegroom shows up, all similarities has ended. All similarities has ended. The foolish ones looked like the wise ones. I mean, they looked like they appear like them. They are in a church. They claim to be Christians. They claim to believe all the right things. They even had very warm feelings toward Jesus. Ah, but they were never regenerated. They were never born again. In fact, the oil 
symbolizes that inner change in a person's life, a believer's life, that oil is a symbol of the inner transformation that takes place in a believer's life by the power of the Holy Spirit. That oil is the inner delight of being sold out for Jesus Christ. And so the question that only you can answer, nobody, nobody, nobody can answer it for you but you. Do you live your Christian life in expectation of that great day? Can you hear the faint voice? The groom is coming. The groom is coming. It doesn't matter what you claim. It doesn't matter if you call yourself a Christian or not. It doesn't matter whether you think you have your own spirituality or not. The question is, do you live your life in the light of the joy of that great day? Do you long for that great day? Do you serve and give and do all that you do? in anticipation of that great day, in the reward of that great day. No, I'm not asking you if you responded to the gospel message. I've responded to the gospel a few years ago. I, I made that decision. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm a member of such and such denomination. I'm a member of such and such. No, 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 that's not what I'm asking. I'm not asking you even if you believe that Jesus is going to come back or not. A lot of people do, and they're not believers. The question is, are you born again? Do you have oil? Do you have oil? Is your life filled with such love for the Lord Jesus Christ that you cannot wait to see Him face to face? Perhaps by now some of you may be asking, Michael, how can I be absolutely sure? How can I be absolutely certain that I'm not like those foolish young women at the coming of the bridegroom? Great question. Wonderful question. Let me give you a series of questions that you need to ask yourself. Listen carefully, please. You ask yourself, do I serve out of duty or do I serve because I love Jesus? You see, even Hollywood now talking about serving and doing good and and running around the world trying to do good. That's not the issue. Do I long for his appearing, or that thought really troubles me? Do I give of myself because it is expected of me, or is it because it's making me feel good, or is it in thanksgiving for my salvation? Do I have a desire to tell others about Jesus and His free gift of salvation, and His gift of eternal life, and His forgiveness of sins, or do I keep my religion to myself? Ask yourself, do I use my Christianity for self-serving purposes or for self-sacrificing? Ask yourself those series of questions. The answer is going to tell you whether you are among the wise or the foolish. Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Please hear me right. As a torch without fuel is worthless, so is the one who professes to be a Christian without the Christian life. In the case of these wise young women, their outward profession was substantiated by their inward possession. A few weeks ago, I told you about another wedding feast that Jesus talked about. 
And how Jesus talked about this person who was a wedding crasher, who thought he could crash that wedding and he could come without the robe of righteousness of Jesus Christ, that he could come to the wedding feast, to come to heaven based on his good work, based on his effort, based in his own righteousness, not the righteousness of the king symbolized in that robe, that he thought that his effort, his religion, his spirituality is going to get him to heaven. And Jesus said he was thrown out into the utter darkness. And this is the fate of those five foolish young women. You know that Jesus has issued that warning again and again and again, and you have to ask yourself, why? What is the reality of what Jesus is saying here? First, he is saying that salvation cannot be borrowed. Salvation cannot be borrowed. Your spouse cannot give it to you. Your parents cannot give it to you. Your children cannot give it to you. Your Christian friends cannot give it to you. You have to receive it directly from the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross for you. Secondly, he is teaching us that it is a lie from the pit of hell that says that in the end time, in the last day, God is going to feel sorry for everybody. He's just going to open the door and let everybody come in because He's so kind, that He's so merciful. He's not allow anybody to suffer for eternity in hell. That is a lie from the pit of Hollywood. No, my beloved friends, and a million no. That would make a mockery of Jesus leaving the splendor of heaven, coming to earth, dying on a cross, rising again. What Jesus secondly here is teaching us is that there is such a thing as it is too late. There is such a thing as too late. A student may get away with cramming in the last day for exams, but not when it comes to eternity. Not when it comes to heaven. Don't gamble with it. Why? Because when you die or Jesus comes back, it is and it will be too late. The door will be shut. The door will be sealed, and nobody can open it. These foolish ones tried to borrow salvation. Oh, but they couldn't. They tried to buy salvation, and they couldn't. And Jesus is saying that the time is now. The hour is now. Harden not your heart. The opportunity is now. And just in case you think that I'm preaching salvation and coming to Christ, becoming born again, and then live your life any old merry way, I want to tell you, it was C.S. Lewis who said that those who have accomplished more on this earth are the ones who are more heavenly-minded. Lord Shaftesbury of England. He's not as well known, perhaps, as Wilberforce because of Wilberforce's involvement in outlawing slavery, but Lord Shaftesbury accomplished so many great and mighty things in England. He had lifted so many people out of poverty, out of the slums. He has supported so many 
missionary endeavors of gospel proclamation around the world. Listen to what he said and understand that's exactly what Jesus is warning us against. Here's what he said. I don't think that the last 40 years I have ever lived one conscious hour that was not influenced by the thought of our Lord's return. 